welcome to this weekly audio digest edition of the Herald Scotland from Monday the 19th to Thursday the 22nd of November 2018. Read by volunteers at Cure Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. The headlines in part one. This Brexit fiasco could bring us peace of mind in the end. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon under pressure after letter reveals past support for Holyrood corporate killing law. High risk of harm to Scottish public through environmental health cuts. An article by Martin Williams, senior news reporter. Aberdeen Scott McKenna reveals how dicey bus trips and the GBX are helping to forge Scotland's bonds. Labour and the SNP can't stop us plunging into a blind Brexit no one wants. Book Review, Armistice by Carol Ann Duffy. Scott's watchdog calls for calorie cap to make food on the go healthier. The Herald, Monday, November 19th. The Mark Smith column. This Brexit fiasco could bring us peace of mind in the end. On the night of the 28th October 1971, not long after the House of Commons voted in favour of the UK joining the European Community, the then Prime Minister Edward Heath retired to number 10 to celebrate his victory. Sitting down at his clavichord, he played the first prelude from Bach's well-tempered clavier. It was the right choice for that moment, he later wrote in his memoirs, at once so serene, so ordered and so profound. Forty-seven years on from that revealing little moment in political history, Theresa May now faces a vote of her own in the Commons, to pretty much undo all of Ted Heath's work, and it makes you wonder what music might be appropriate this time around. Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time, perhaps, or John Cage's Peace for Organ, As Slow as Possible, which takes 639 years to perform, or maybe even E.O. by the Teletubbies. Any of them might symbolise the mess we're in now, the disorder, the division, the dragged-out damage. To make some sense of it all, it might be useful to remember what Edward Heath thought he had achieved in 1971, as well as the approach he took to some of the controversies that are still with us, such as referendums. Mr Heath said in 71 that he believed the British people would eventually see the wider benefits of the European community, particularly peace and prosperity. I believe they will become convinced that this is where the future of modern Britain lies, he said. For a while they did, although Ted Heath did have to fight hard to win a majority in the Commons. He also resisted the pressure to hold a referendum, which some said was the only way to avoid the claim that the government was dragging the country into the common market against its will. Mr Heath took a view that now looks impossibly elitist or hugely realistic. In a parliamentary democracy, he said, it would be irresponsible to leave a decision on so critical and complex an issue 
to the electorate. It obviously wouldn't be easy for a politician to express that kind of view now, but there are lessons for Theresa May to learn from Ted Heath's experiences. Not easy ones, though. Specifically, in one respect, Mrs May, or whoever succeeds her, needs to do exactly the same as Ted Heath did, which is to aim for the reasonable centre of the electorate, which still exists and which supports remaining in the EU, a soft Brexit or some pragmatic compromise. However, it now looks like she can only achieve that result if, in another respect, she does exactly the opposite to Ted Heath. Heath thought referendums contradicted the principles of parliamentary democracy, and they do. But in the circumstances we're in, another public vote is the only way to get us away from the extremes of Brexit. In fact, a second vote may end up being one of the few redeeming features of this process by recalibrating us back to where all the good and sensitive stuff happens in politics, the centre ground. It is likely to happen because of the logistics of where we are. Theresa May did not, and realistically could not, stick to her Remain principles when she took over as leader of the Conservative Party. But she has achieved the best deal in the circumstances, some of which were unavoidable, some of which were self-inflicted. The unavoidable bit was the UK's border with Ireland. A hard border is impossible without being a member of the Customs Union. Whereas the self-inflicted bit was Mrs May's insistence on ending the free movement of people, which ruled out membership of the single market. In this version of our world, part reality, part unreality created by Mrs May, the deal we have is the only practical option. All of that means that the next few stages in the process are pretty much inevitable. Mrs May is still trying to appease Brexiters by promising that a wonderful free trade deal is still on the horizon. But unless we can reach a deal that avoids a harder border in Ireland, and no one has come up with one, then, under Mrs May's plan, Britain will eventually enter the backstop outlined in the withdrawal agreement. Realistically, the backstop is also likely to form the basis of the long-term relationship between the UK and the EU. In other words, a UK-wide customs union with Northern Ireland retaining some elements of the single market. However, we know, and Mrs May knows, that there is no majority in the Commons for that, which leaves only four options, three unlikely and one almost inevitable. The unlikely options are, first, a no-deal Brexit, but again there's no majority in the Commons for that. Second, a renegotiation of the deal, which the EU has already ruled out whatever Andrea Leadsom says. And third, a general election, which neither Theresa May nor any other Tory PM would go for, which leaves us with the fourth option, another referendum.
Ted Heath was right to resist one when he was PM, but 47 years on, another public vote will soon be Mrs May's only choice. She cannot appeal to the right-wing extremists who think the same way about Brexit as some Christian evangelists think about gay cure therapy, that the facts of life can be changed by faith. In insisting on her version of Brexit, she has also ruled out support from the hardcore Remainers and the SNP. However, in consciously or unconsciously creating a situation where a second vote on Brexit is now the only option, Mrs May could be doing us all a favour. There is always a chance the result will be another vote for leave, but the polls show a vote for Remain is increasingly likely. If so, that could help quieten the extremists of all kinds, Brexiter, Socialist, Northern Irish Unionist and Scottish Nationalist, and take us back to the centre of politics. A good result in a second referendum on Brexit might also achieve a little of what Edward Heath felt in number 10 on the evening of 28th October 1971. A sense that the world is in the right order, a feeling that we're doing what's best for Britain, and maybe even some longed-for peace of mind. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cue and Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland. Politics. Recorded on the 19th November 2018. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon under pressure after letter reveals past support for Holyrood corporate killing law. By Politics and Investigations Editor, The Herald on Sunday, Paul Hutchian. Nicola Sturgeon has been urged to give the families of individuals killed by an employer's gross negligence greater legal powers after it emerged she backed similar legislation in opposition. The Scottish Government has said it will consider plans by Labour MSP Claire Baker to create new legal avenues for the families of victims of fatal workplace accidents. However, documents show that the First Minister and free-serving SNP Cabinet Secretaries John Swinney, Michael Matheson and Rosanna Cunningham supported proposals for Holyrood legislation back in 2006. Ms Baker, a member of Scottish Labour leader Richard Leonard's Shadow Cabinet, last week unveiled plans to amend the law on culpable homicide. The consultation stated that in cases where individuals cause death by recklessness or gross negligence, it is relatively easy for the Crown Office to secure a conviction. But on occasions where medium-sized or larger companies cause a death, she argued that it remains extremely difficult to secure a conviction of corporate culpable homicide. She believes firms and their directors should be held accountable for any wrongdoing. It is only right that, as well as the company being guilty, the individuals whose actions led to the company's guilt can be convicted and sentenced appropriately, her document stated. Her plans bill comes 11 years after the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act, was passed by MPs in 2007. 
The legislation clarified the criminal liabilities of companies and, in cases where serious health and safety failures led to workplace fatalities, made prosecutions easier. However, critics were underwhelmed as the legislation did not apply to directors personally. Ms Baker's consultation said of the UK law, The law of culpable homicide has always failed to have one clear set of rules that apply to all wrongdoers, individuals and organisations alike. Many hope that would be achieved by the 2007 Act, but it has failed entirely in the objective. 17 people are believed to have died on average in industrial incidents each year in Scotland over the last five years, but there has not been a prosecution under existing legislation in the last decade. At the time that the UK proposal was under discussion, former Labour MSP Karen Gillan consulted on Scottish-only legislation in 2006. Ms Gillan abandoned the plan amid a legal wrangle, but her far-reaching proposals, which are in line with that Ms Baker is backing, secured the support of dozens of MSPs. Fifteen nationalists supported Ms Gillan, including the three MSPs who now sit in Ms Durgeon's cabinet, as well as prominent backbenchers such as Shona Robison, Alex Neal, Linda Fabiani and Maureen Watt. Ten of the fifteen are still at Holyrood. The Herald on Sunday has also obtained a letter from Ms Durgeon as an opposition MSP who wrote to the Families Against Corporate Killers campaign group in 2006 on the Gillan proposal. The SNP is supportive of this legislation and, in particular, legislation specific to Scotland. It is regrettable that the Scottish Executive has not shown leadership in this issue, she wrote. Campaigners believe the SNP MSPs could turn support and opposition into action in government. Lawyer Patrick Maguire said senior members of the SNP, including the First Minister and Deputy First Minister, have previously pledged to support reform of the law in this area. The only reason that I can see for them not supporting Claire Baker's proposal would be party politics, and this issue is far too serious to fall foul of such games. The issue therefore comes down entirely to political will. I hope that all MSPs will rise above party politics and get behind Claire's proposal. Ms Baker said, The campaign to reform Scotland's culpable homicide laws to better protect workers has been a long one. I hope those SNP MSPs, including the First Minister and three Cabinet Secretaries, who backed similar proposals in 2006, will now join with me in finally bringing about these much-needed changes. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, While health and safety at work is reserved, we will consider any proposals for our Members' Bill carefully, if and when they are introduced into the Scottish Parliament. We support the 2007 Act, as it sends a robust message to organisations that they must meet a duty of care to employees and the public. If current legislation could be improved by new devolved legislation, Ministers would consider what further steps should be taken. By Politics and Investigations Editor, The Herald on Sunday, Paul Hutchian. High risk of harm to Scottish public through environmental health cuts. An article by Martin Williams, senior news reporter, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 20th of November 2018. The public are being put at high risk of harm due to cuts to environmental health departments across Scotland, according to a new report. The Tipping Point study by the Unison Union, which examined the impact of austerity on local authority environment health teams, warns that a, quote, huge range of work is being left undone, end of quotation, including risk inspections, licensing enforcement and pest control. It said that the cuts meant there was less preventative work being undertaken, warning this results quotes in a failure to protect citizens from a range of injuries and health problems, end of quotation. 
teams were found to have to manage an ever-increasing workload with significantly reduced resources, declining staff numbers and a slump in experienced staff due to retirements, leaving many working long hours as they struggle to maintain a service that keeps the public safe. Just over two in three of those who responded said there had been cuts or severe cuts in their service this year, while 95% said there had been cuts or severe cuts in the last five years. Responses showed that budgets have been cut by 12% in the last year alone. It comes a month after audit figures revealed more than half Edinburgh's food businesses were overdue an inspection or had never been rated. A report by Food Standards Scotland said there were 6,488 food firms listed in Edinburgh, but 2,886 were overdue an inspection and 915 were unrated. Tom Bell... Chief Executive of the Royal Environmental Health Institute of Scotland, REHIS, said the organisation had warned about the effect of cuts on services, but now the effect had reached a critical point and was concerned that it had led to a slump in the number taking BSC honours in environmental health. We are now at the stage where there are a very small number of individuals coming through to fill an increasing number of vacancies. So it has been very, very poor management by local authorities in that they haven't foreseen this situation and if they have, they have decided that the work of the environmental health officers has not been sufficiently important to justify really investing in the future and ensuring training places are available. Hugh Pennington, Emeritus Professor of Microbiology at the University of Aberdeen, said that the public were being put at increased risk by the cuts. There are lots of ways that environmental health departments cope, none of which improve public safety, he said. Watch this space. Let's hope there are not going to be any big poisoning outbreaks. I have personally been involved in inspecting problems where the lack of the experience of staff was the big problem, rather than not having enough. But if you haven't got enough and you don't have the experienced staff, you just compound the problem. The public should be taking its part in putting pressure on the government and local authorities to give the message that there have been enough cuts and let's try and restore things. The report based on a survey undertaken in June, revealed that teams are now reacting to complaints rather than focusing on working to prevent things going wrong, with some areas of work completely cut back on, increasing the risk of accidents, food poisoning, contaminated land and vermin infestation. It found that three in four stated that morale in their teams was low, and only 8% expected this to get better in the next few years. Fewer than one in five, 18%, believe their teams have the resources to deliver an adequate service to the public, while two-thirds say they are working late and skipping breaks and lunch to try to get more work done. The report also highlighted a looming skills gap as almost half of respondents to the survey carried out in June 2018 are aged between 46 and 55, with another fifth due to retire over the next 10 years. 
It called for an end to austerity and for investment in public services. It says, Austerity is deeply impacting on the ability of public services to meet the needs of our citizens. This report lays out impact of cuts to environmental health team budgets, leaving staff overworked, underpaid and stressed. This means that citizens and the wider environment are at a high risk of harm. There is a better way to do this. We need to end austerity, invest in public services, focusing on services like environmental health, which prevent harm. Spending in this way will save money to a range of other public services in both the short and longer term. Mark Ferguson, chairman of Unison Scotland's local government committee, said... Our members can see departments depleted with the loss of experienced staff, fewer proactive inspections and services being drastically cut. Not only does this put people in danger, it also pushes costs onto other public bodies, which costs more money than investing in a high-quality environmental health service. A convention of Scottish local authorities, COSLA spokesman, said... As our essential services campaign makes abundantly clear, we need a fair settlement from December's budget to continue to provide the essential services our communities rely on. As we see from things like this, it is clear that the impact of past local government settlements are having a biting impact. A Scottish Government spokesman said, despite continued UK Government real terms cuts to Scotland's resource budget, we have treated local government very fairly. In 2018-19, councils will receive funding through the Local Government Finance Settlement of £10.7 billion. This will provide a real terms boost in both revenue and capital funding for public services. Local authorities are responsible for managing their own budgets and priorities, including environmental health. You no longer have to get this Digest programme on tape. An improved daily service is available on BWBF, Sonata Plus, Internet Radio and online at qnreview.com forward slash free podcasts. Alternatively, a 90-minute Digest is also available on CastBox and you don't have to wait on the post. Go to qnreview.com forward slash weekly digest to access our Castbox channels. And now, back to the main programme. Article from Herald Scotland, 23rd November 2018, Sport. Aberdeen Scott McKenna reveals how dicey bus trips and the GBX are helping to forge Scotland's bonds. It may be an institution in the west of Scotland, but who knew that the GBX would one day be the saviour of the national football team, or at least play its part in turning round their faltering fortunes? For those unfamiliar with the GBX, the name is shorthand for the George Bowie experience on a Saturday night radio show featuring the aforementioned DJ that has been the soundtrack to countless nights out in Glasgow and surrounding areas for around 20 years. And now it is helping Alex McLeish's Scotland squad forge the kind of team spirit that not only contributed to their emphatic win over Albania on Saturday night, but also got them through the dicey two-hour journey back to their hotel after the game. Not every player is a fan. 
Aberdeen defender Scott McKenna, being the unassuming forfer lad that he is, can't quite wrap his head around it. But he wasn't about to spoil the party atmosphere among the squad after they shook off the gloom that has seemed to be trailing them on the long and winding road back to Tirana. We were driving on the wrong side of the road with a police escort going round blind corners and that, said McKenna. We made it back and we got home safe, so that was the main thing. The right lane was full of buses, so we were going down past them, and there were cars coming the opposite way who had to get off the road to pass us. We got there in the end, but it wasn't great, to be honest. The mood on the bus was obviously good, though. The louder ones up the back of the bus had all the BAM tunes on, all the Glasgow boys. You know what they're like. It's not really my cup of tea, that music. We don't get that in Forfa. Did it then cross McKenna's mind, though, to question the musical tastes of his teammates? Oh, no, definitely not, he said. I'd get absolutely slaughtered for that, and I'm outnumbered. There are more Glasgow boys there than there are Forfa boys. I'd choose something a bit calmer, but upbeat, not GBX or Zander Nation. It's the louder ones, let them do what they want. It was just delight from everyone to celebrate with each other. The way we started the game on Saturday, right from the get-go, everyone knew what their jobs were. When you get a goal quite early, it settles everyone down, and when everyone celebrates together, it just shows you the team spirit we have. It's always a lot easier when you go away and win a game, but the manner in which we did it was great for everyone. The clean sheet was obviously great for the defenders. That's something we take extra pride in. That made it even better. The performance of Scotland's centre-back pairing on Saturday belied their inexperience. The 22-year-old McKenna, with seven caps to his name, was the senior partner alongside debutante David Bates, who is a month younger. McKenna is encouraged by the understanding they showed and sees signs of potential for a long-term partnership at the heart of the Scotland defence. Batesy came in beside me and didn't look one bit out of place, he said. I thought it was an excellent debut. I think we can complement each other. The key to it is communication and helping each other out. We limited their chances, and I don't think Griegsy really had a save to make in the game. Batesy is a great guy. I spoke to him on his first day in the squad and we got on right away. There wasn't any awkwardness or anything. Sometimes people feel someone is coming in to take your position or it's competition, but he was fine. The battle to top the UEFA Nations League group all comes down to the showdown with Israel at Hamden tonight, where Scotland must win to earn a Euro 2020 playoff semi-final, a one-off match that would take place back at the National Stadium. It is quite the incentive, and Kenner believes that if he and his fellow defenders can do their part again, the attackers will deliver at the other end. We came wanting to top the group and we have got ourselves into a position to try and do that, he said. We had a disappointing result in Israel and we'll be trying to correct that. If we go out and win the game, we win the group. It's as easy as that. There is no sitting in trying to get as nil-nil or knowing a draw's enough. We need to go out and outscore them and try and hopefully keep a clean sheet. It's black and white. The Herald Scotland On Wednesday the 21st of November 2018. Opinion. Labour and the SNP can't stop us plunging into a blind Brexit no one wants. This article by Ian McWhirter, political editor. In a divorce, there comes a moment that matrimonial lawyers sometimes call capitulation. This is when both sides become so exhausted with negotiations that they just accept whatever deal happens to be on the table so that they can get on with their lives. 
and we're reaching that point in Brexit. Brussels gave up bothering months ago, and the UK public just want an end to this purgatory. The draft withdrawal agreement drawn up between the UK and Brussels will be endorsed by the EU summit this weekend and voted on by the UK Parliament next month. Number 10 hopes that everyone's minds will be addled by John Lewis Christmas ads by then and that Labour will abandon its facile suggestion that it can go back to Brussels and negotiate something better. Angela Merkel herself has spoken. The answer is nein danke. The 585-page document has been so tightly drafted and language so massaged and manipulated that it's past the stage when words have any fixed meaning. Constitutional lawyers think that some concessions have been made to the UK, at least in distancing the European Court of Justice from dispute resolution. But the Luxembourg Court is still there, in the background, standing as ultimate authority on all these aspects of EU law that Britain accepts. State aid, environment, workplace regulations, trademarks, so on. Similarly, while Northern Ireland won't remain formally in the European single market after Brexit, it will be more closely integrated with the European Union than the UK. There'll be regulatory divergence. As Theresa May has admitted, firms located there will have a competitive advantage, frictionless access to the single market. Goods entering the EU from the rest of the UK will be subject to checks. And there's no getting round this, however opaque the language. The document is a masterpiece of obfuscation. Weasel words, circumlocutions and qualifications, which suits both sides right now. Brussels knows it can just roll back from much of the deal after March when Britain's formally left the EU and paid its bill. Mrs May just wants to get past the March exit date so that she can get a life. The agreement really only covers the Irish backstop, the divorce bill and the rights of EU citizens. If the negotiations on future trading relations are successful, Mrs May insists, the Irish backstop may never be needed. But these negotiations haven't begun. As soon as this document is agreed, the whole dismal process begins again. Another two years of legal wrangling, red lines, ultimatums, delays and last-minute compromise. In fact, the transition period's already being extended to 2022 and could go on until quote-unquote 20xdx, according to the political declaration. The UK will certainly remain in EU orbit for many years, even if there is that Canada plus slash Norway minus slash Switzerland class deal that Mrs May envisages. It's mind-numbing. If only someone could just stop the whole process now, I'm pretty sure most British voters would accept it. They're well past the point of capitulation and worrying about their sanity. All credit to Nicola Sturgeon, therefore, for holding talks with Labour in Westminster about halting the Brexit process by delaying Article 50, which formally takes us out of the European Union in 128 days. She says her MPs would endorse a people's vote on staying in the EU. This is good. Unfortunately, there seems vanishingly little chance of them having the opportunity to do so. There's even less chance of Scotland getting a special deal like in Northern Ireland, or remaining in the single market. Scotland fell off the Brexit map after the aborted independence referendum in 2017 and no longer counts. Mrs May is clearly not willing to call a people's vote, and she's not going anywhere. The Prime Minister's authority has been greatly enhanced by the stupidity of the Brexiteers. They staged a premature leadership challenge and effectively lost it by not delivering the numbers for a no-confidence vote. Just about sums up their entire self-deluded approach. Labour's still hoping for a general election, even if there's no chance of getting one. If and when Labour MPs vote against Mrs May's withdrawal agreement next month, the government won't fall. There needs to be a two-thirds majority to force an election, and Tory MPs won't vote for an early Christmas. 
The Prime Minister will simply come back to the House with a face-saving amendment or two, perhaps agreeing to extend British participation in the customs union or territory beyond the backstop. By then, there'll be huge pressure on Labour to sign up to her deal, not just from the Prime Minister. The Irish Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, Michelle Barnier, Angela Merkel, the CBI, the UK press, including the new and improved Daily Mail, will all be screaming for Labour to endorse this deal as the only way of avoiding a disastrous no-deal Brexit. And is Labour really going to walk through the lobbies with Jacob Rees-Mogg and the DUP to vote for chaos at the ports, a stock market crash, army on the streets and tens of thousands of Labour voters laid off work? Labour's grounds for opposing the withdrawal agreement are, anyway, paper thin. Even if the negotiations could be restarted before March, what would Labour even be asking for? Jeremy Corbyn doesn't want the Norway option of staying in the EU single market, because that would involve free movement. He doesn't want to stay in the EU customs union either, only a customs union, which Labour says it would negotiate, but Theresa May's already been there and done that. Anyway, Mr Corbyn wants Brexit, a jobs Brexit, to succeed. He's avoiding any firm commitment to a people's vote, which would undermine Labour in English Brexit constituencies. I doubt if Ms Sturgeon's going to persuade him otherwise. Labour may not avoid voting in the end for withdrawal under EU terms. So, there we have it. Britain plunges ahead into a blind Brexit nobody wants, leaving the EU and all of its benefits without any future trade deal. It's a self-inflicted disaster that historians will argue over for the next century. How a great nation simply just took leave of its senses. This article was by Ian McWhorter, political editor. Remember, this Weekly Digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qnreview.com forward slash free podcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and Weekly Digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. The Glasgow Herald, Thursday, 22nd November 2018. Arts and Entertainments. This article from the 11th of November. Book Review, Armistice by Carol Ann Duffy. After this, there will be no more centenaries. With the hundredth anniversary of its end, the First World War has passed a milestone on its inexorable slide out of living memory and into history. Poet laureate Carol Ann Duffy has chosen to commemorate the 1918 armistice with an anthology of 100 poems celebrating peace and reconciliation. Responses to the cessation of hostilities in places as far apart in space and time as ancient Greece, Northern Ireland, the United States and Vietnam. It might ruffle feathers in certain quarters, prompting grumblings that Duffy is downplaying the Allied victory and the sacrifice of our Tommies in a whitewash of political correctness. I would refer them back to my old secondary school history teacher, himself a veteran of the global conflict. What is the objective of war? He barked at us during one lesson. Victory, piped up one of my classmates. No, boy, he pounced, delighted that at least one of us had taken the bait. The objective of war is peace. It was one of those light bulb moments when a point had been made that would actually stick. This book shows how many ways that sentiment can be expressed, how poignantly and in what varied shades. 
The gut reaction of relief and optimism inspired by the outbreak of peace is captured by Sarah Teasdale's opener. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground, and swallows calling with their shimmering sound. And by Siegfried Sassoon's sense of exhilaration as the horror recedes. But May Wedderburn Cannon writes, In 1918 Paris, of the private grief in the midst of public jubilation, while Ivor Gurney, as harsh bugle notes rend and embronze the air, tuts at how quickly people turn once more to trivial things. To Wilfred Owen, a woman's charms will never again be as sweet after what's been lost, and with peace comes the realisation to both Owen and Walt Whitman that those they fought and killed were just like them. Others train their thoughts on the long and glamorous business of reconstruction. Things won't pick themselves up, after all, writes Vinclava Zimborska, well aware that all their effort is for the sake of generations that will neither remember nor care what they fought for. It's a thread picked up and expanded by John Hewitt, who acknowledges that things can't go back to the way they were, and that, furthermore, war simply accelerates the process of change, and by Alan Gillis, who in the wake of the Troubles finds the idea of progress hollow. It's a humbling collection, in which personal grief and national tragedy are as inseparable as human resilience and human folly, and even the brightest of futures will have been built on the bones of the fallen. There are lines here which will bring solace, evoke empathy and provoke anger. But among the words of these grateful survivors, one of the most sobering notes is struck by John Balaban's dry observation from his celebration of spring that our Asian war is over, others have begun. This article by Alistair Mabbott. This is an article from the Herald. 22nd of November 2018. Scott's watchdog calls for calorie cap to make food on the go healthier. The nation's food standards watchdog has made the suggestion as it examines ways to get the public to eat more healthily. Food Standards Scotland also makes a case for a cut takeaway proportion sizes across high calorie offerings from so called out of home outlets including restaurants, cafes and pubs, takeaway and delivery firms as part of a package of proposals. An FSS consolation document makes suggestions that caterers, retailers, manufacturers and businesses who supply food could adopt including applying maximum calorie limits and redesigning menus to exclude very high calorie menu items. It also says there may be a case of mandatory rather than voluntary calorie labelling and that new standards should be developed for providing full neutral information. It charts a range of menu items from pizzas, burgers, cakes and pastries to fish shoppers, cooked breakfasts and even cinema popcorn where there was a considerable scope for cutting calories by reducing portion sizes and changing recipes to cut fats and sugars and increasing fruit, vegetable and fibre content. Evidence showed that food purchased outside the home was skewed towards less healthier choices and that large portion sizes, excess fats, added sugars and significant fruits and vegetables all contribute to the problem, FSS said. A recent survey of example of chip shops in Glasgow showed the average portion of chips was close to a thousand calories, indicating very large portions. 
An FSS consultation document suggests major caterers, retailers, manufacturers, and businesses who supply food could adopt, include, and apply maximum calorie limits and redesign the menus to exclude very high calorie menu items. FSS said businesses should also make small and half portions of standard menu items widely available, and said nutritional information should be available in all food eaten outside the home. Ross Finney, the FSS chairman, said, "You can't have a calorie cap unless you have calculated calories. We do have to have to address the issue of having calories clearly calculated. Then we are saying there is a possibility of having a calorie cap." And again, we would have to discuss for government and how to do enforce that. But I would very much rather than an extensive consultation, we get agreement in the industry and public side that this is one of the sectors where we need to make a big change. And frankly, if we made it voluntary, it would make it a heck of a lot easier. It has been estimated that only a quarter of out-of-home businesses currently provide calorie labelling at the point of choice. This contrasted starkly with a near universal provision of calorie and nutrition information on pre-packaged products available in retail outlets. FSS also suggests using greater promotion and marketing to encourage consumers to choose healthier options, and said it would be encouraging food businesses to take their own voluntary measures to change their promotion and marketing practices. Caterers, manufacturers, and businesses who supply food for the catering industry all have a role in reducing calories and resetting the norms away from excessive consumption," said the FSS. A set of food outside the home could be improved by businesses dropping practices that encourage overeating while positively marking and promoting fruit and vegetables. There are thirty-nine thousand restaurants, supermarkets, takeaways, and food delivery services who sell food on the go in Scotland. Approximately half of so-called out-of-home visits in Scotland are made to branded businesses, and half are made to independent businesses. Chips, cakes, and pastries, specifically coffees and sugary soft drinks, are among the top food and drinks purchases outside the home. The FSS said that given the high calorie content of these type of foods, there is a need to rebalance out-of-home offerings towards more nutritious, low-calorie menu options. Obesity and diet-related ill health is one of Scotland's biggest health concerns, costing around 4.6 billion every year. FSS says that with two-thirds of adults in Scotland already overweight or obese. The health consequences of a poor diet are already very real, and their impact on nation's economy and productivity. It is estimated that up to a quarter of our calories may come from eating outside the home, and the FSS says it is important that the out-of-home sector plays its part to improve the Scottish diet. Mr. Finney added, "Given that the sector is projected to grow, change is needed now to make out-of-home food and drink healthier." Clear calorie labelling is also crucial to enable consumers to make informed choices about the food they buy and eat outside the home. Responses to the FSS consultation will be used to guide the development of an overarching out-of-home strategy for consideration by the FSS board, with recommendations being provided to Scottish ministers next year. That's the end of part one. 
After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager Sophie Weldon said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, but also, more importantly, companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk. That is S-O-P-H-I-E at B-L-I-N-D dot org dot UK or phone 01283 that's 01283 To find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook, or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme. Welcome back. The headlines in part two. Newspapers play a vital role in championing democracy. Music review, Scots Fiddle Festival at the Pleasance Theatre, Edinburgh. Neil Mackay, why climate change should be the only story that matters. An article by Neil Mackay, writer at large. I have a good feeling about this group of Scottish players. I can see the desire to beat Israel in their eyes. The Agenda Column. We must have a people's vote to help protect the most vulnerable. Alex McLeish. I never considered quitting Scotland. I am only getting started and the best is still to come. 70% of firms back Edinburgh tourist tax. Chamber study finds. New Art Gallery and revamped observatory ready to open on Edinburgh's Calton Hill. Five children rescued from burning block of flats in Court Bridge. The Herald, Monday, November 19th. The Marianne Taylor Column. Newspapers play a vital role in championing democracy. Journalists rarely like to become the story, not least because stories that feature them tend to mean bad news, both personally and for their profession. This was certainly the case over the weekend, as the fate of the Scotsman hung in the balance. On Saturday, 
the Edinburgh-based newspaper was put into administration by its then-owners, Johnson Press, alongside a slew of other UK titles. The papers had been put up for sale a few weeks ago, but no potential buyer was willing or able to cover the £220 million of debt attached, which was supposed to be repaid next year. For a while, it looked as though the end was nigh for the 200-year-old Scotsman, as well as the Edinburgh Evening News, the Eye Paper and the Yorkshire Post, another of the oldest papers in the UK, which serves a population the size of Scotland. Scores of other loyal local titles were also at risk. Later, a statement confirmed that a new company had been formed by Johnston's bondholders, which, it seems, will preserve jobs and titles in the short term. Whether there is a medium or indeed long-term future for the business remains less clear. Like most of those who work in the close-knit Scottish newspaper industry, I felt sad and a bit angry as the events unfolded. Sad that so many good, decent colleagues would be worrying about their jobs and wondering how they would look after their families, angry that they and the readers they serve had been put in this precarious situation in the first place. Make no mistake, those of us on the inside know all too well how the newspaper industry has struggled to respond to the huge challenges of the digital age. Seeing our newsrooms reduce in size and scope as consumers stopped buying print products, advertising revenues fell, and shareholders continued to expect big dividends. But we also know how hard and tenaciously the journalists work to give readers quality news and comment in an increasingly uncertain world, how determined we are to evolve and carry on. Those of us who work for long-established brands are very aware that the trust our readers put in us, the authority we carry, has never been more valuable or vital than now in today's fragmented, confusing world. With this in mind, journalists from up and down the land tweeted and retweeted messages of solidarity and empathy with colleagues at the Scotsman, while public figures from across the political divide including the First Minister, also voiced support. It was shocking and dispiriting, therefore, to see others react with joy and even glee at news of the Scotsman's struggles, rushing to link the paper's constitutional stance. It was against independence in the 2014 referendum, with recent misfortunes, seemingly delighted to see two centuries of national journalism go down the tubes, all because they don't agree with an editorial line. Taking aside the plain nastiness of reveling in the misfortunes of others, the hubris and naivety inherent in this narrative is equally depressing. Do the authors of such social media threads truly believe failure to endorse a yes vote in 2014 has been instrumental 
in bringing down a mainstay in what they insist on calling the mainstream media as opposed to economics and or poor management. Surely it was as simple as this. My excellent colleagues at The National would be the best-selling newspaper in Scotland. They seem to believe consumers buy newspapers solely on the basis of constitutional affiliation. I've got news, they don't. Isn't it blatantly obvious that no publication is solely about its editorial stance? That's simply not the way journalism or journalists work. Open any paper, tabloid or broadsheet, local or national, and you'll find stories on an endless stream of subjects written by people from every background and age bracket, race, gender and political persuasions with a staggering array of interests, contacts and areas of expertise. The folk who write and edit newspapers are not perfect by any means. They are human and sometimes make mistakes. But in my experience, the overwhelming majority thrive on interrogation and scrutiny. Indeed, that's why they became journalists in the first place. Those who relish the thought of newspapers disappearing should be very careful what they wish for. Do they honestly want to live in a society where only their own viewpoint is reflected, where positive coverage of the party, cause or person they support, be it independence, Brexit, Nicola Sturgeon or Donald Trump, is all they can cope with? That's a dangerous and self-destructive road to go down that is already blunting critical faculties and making us unable to handle complexity. It also makes us less kind. The digital world has given us a capacity for pluralism across newspaper brands, broadcasters and online outlets that is breathtaking. Ironically, social media is simultaneously driving us to shut down those we don't agree with. Let's resist this urge at all costs. Nerd Scotland Arts, recorded on 19th November 2018. Music Review, Scots Fiddle Festival at the Pleasance Theatre, Edinburgh, by folk and jazz critic Rob Adams. Scots Fiddle Festival, Pleasance Theatre, Edinburgh, Rob Adams, four stars. The Scots Fiddle Festival marked a new phase with a change of venue and its first commission in its 23-year history. A celebration of fiddle music in all its styles, with often international guests added to its rich procession of homegrown talents, the festival was rewarded for its latest display of ambition with a sold-out opening night concert and a performance courtesy of composer and multi-instrumentalist Mike Vass, which drew together fiddle history and a modern interpretation that honoured the instrument's roots and even a prop fiddle that was sacrificed in the name of justifiable drama. Vass is the four pillars, concentrated on the four main tune styles, air, March, Strathspey and Real, and laced in vintage examples from school Scottish studies recordings of players who had inherited and carried the tradition forward with stories to match, a source of some mirth as well as of great character. These complemented the players on stage as they too carried the tradition forward through Vass's intuitive tunesmithery and beautiful writing for the four soloists, string quartet, supporting keyboards and percussion and full ensemble like. The evening had begun with youthful fiddler Ryan Young, 
playing loudly acclaimed raw and direct tune sets to guitarist Jen Butterworth's accompaniment. This continued this spare approach in places. Lauren McCall's opening air was gorgeously soulful, while also integrating Ian Sandyland's brilliant live-wire vibraphone capabilities and imaginative pizzicato work from the string quartet. His own solo march is Tom Gibbs' keyboard accompaniment, was boldly stirring and, and Patsy Reed on superb snap-rich space, and Jenna Reed playing reels with marvellous facility, interpreted his melodies with the strong personality and assurance they merited. By folk and jazz critic Rob Adams. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cune Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. Neil Mackay, Why Climate Change Should Be the Only Story That Matters An article by Neil Mackay, writer-at-large, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 20th of November 2018. I hate to be the person who breaks it to everyone, especially at this late stage, but Brexit and Scottish independence don't really matter that much, or rather they matter, but in the way that a fiddle matters to a burning Rome. The burning imagery is fitting because what really matters is the torching of the earth by the human race. I am taking it for granted that readers believe in climate change, know for a fact that it's real, and so I'm not going to rehearse the science which has been long established and proven. If anyone doubts the truth of climate change, the queue to join the Flat Earth Society is just over there. If you believe in climate change, then you should fear it. And I don't just mean worry about it when you hear the words on the news. I mean dread it, be terrified by it on an existential level or perhaps a mass extinction level. If you don't, if you sit and fret about Brexit or Scottish independence more than you do the planet's rising temperature, then you may as well be worrying about your mortgage repayments while there's a killer in your house with a gun at your child's head. More and more people are getting this, that the only really important question facing the human race is how we ensure that the planet survives so our children and grandchildren can grow old, live well and be happy. At the weekend in London, thousands of demonstrators carried out one of the biggest acts of mass civil disobedience in the UK in decades in an attempt to hammer into the thick skulls of our political leaders that climate change matters above all else. It got little news coverage. Around 85 people were arrested after blocking London's main bridges, the demonstrators, part of the new organisation Extinction Rebellion, will continue the disruption tomorrow when activists will converge on central London. 
I wish they were doing the same in Glasgow or Edinburgh, because I quite fancy handcuffing myself to some railings with them. The basis of their anger and fear is not only sound and incontrovertible, but morally just. Each one of us should be acting or at least speaking up. In October, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, said there are now just 12 years to avert planetary disaster. 12 years. Cosmologically, that's the blink of an eye. Twelve years ago, Tony Blair was Prime Minister. Mingus Campbell replaced Charles Kennedy as Lib Dem leader. Daniel Craig debuted as Bond. Oh, and Europe was hit by a heatwave, giving the UK its hottest July on record. The shape of things to come, eh? Did you hear much about that IPCC report? Did newspapers clear 12 pages to give you every spit and cough of the findings? Did the TV news run extended reports? Did Parliament, any Parliament, go into special session? We have a dozen years until 2030 in which to keep global warming to a maximum of 1.5 degrees centigrade. If we go even a half a degree above that, then drought, floods and heat waves will mean death and poverty for millions. Coral reefs could be completely eradicated. With the world now one degree centigrade warmer than pre-industrial levels, the IPCC made clear that the hurricanes, droughts and forest fires we are seeing around the world is climate change happening before our very eyes. There have even been forest fires in Lapland in the Arctic Circle. At 1.5 degrees centigrade, the proportion of the world's population exposed to water shortages would be 50% lower than at 2 degrees centigrade. Food would not become as scarce with a 1.5 degree centigrade rise than with a 2 degrees rise. Hundreds of millions more people will be thrust into poverty with a 2 degrees centigrade rise than a 1.5 degrees centigrade rise. Heat-related deaths would also increase. Insects would lose half their natural habitat. Sea level rise would affect 10 million more people. Marine fisheries would crash. At current rates, though, the world is possibly headed for 3 degrees centigrade worth of warming. Almost 100 senior British academics back Extinction Rebellion's campaign of civil disobedience and the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Ron Williams, has thrown his hat into the ring with them as well. These experts say that the failure of politicians to tackle climate change has broken the social contract between government and the people. In an open letter, they said it was their right to bypass the government's inaction and flagrant dereliction of duty and to rebel to defend life itself. We live in the era of the short attention span. News cycles come in a blizzard. Stories swirl and dissipate with the wind before they are properly told. And climate change is a slow-moving catastrophe. It is hard to see. It requires reading, thought and consideration. 
Climate change does not appear on TV with silly blonde hair spouting about the return of £350 million from the EU to the NHS. Climate change does not endlessly bicker about independence. Climate change does not cause a punch-up on Twitter over trans rights or someone dressed as Hitler. Who cares about whether we are in or out of Europe if the world is starting to burn? What is Scottish independence worth if no one is putting the fire out? Why should I worry about what anyone on social media says if the people typing away will be lucky to be alive in 12 years' time? Perhaps the only national or international story that really matters apart from climate change is Donald Trump as his policies, his fetishisation of coal and dirty industries compounds global warming. Many have described events such as Brexit as suicidal or an act of national self-harm. Weighed in the balance against climate change, it is the equivalent of comparing stubbing your toe to slitting your own throat. The climate rebels want a few simple things. A commitment by the government to reduce carbon emissions to zero by 2025 and a citizens' assembly to devise an emergency plan of action similar to that seen during the Second World War. As one young woman who attended the London demo named Alice said... This moment will be remembered in the history books when we finally stopped allowing our leaders to take us over a cliff. Pray she is right. Article from Herald Scotland, 20th of November, 2018. Sport. I have a good feeling about this group of Scottish players. I can see the desire to beat Israel in their eyes. By Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer. Alex McLeish admitted he can sense a burning desire among his Scotland players to secure a Euro 2020 playoff place and silence their critics on the eve of their final Nations League match against Israel last night. The national team, who thrashed Albania 4-0 in Skoda in their penultimate fixture on Saturday, need to win their final Group C1 match at Hamden this evening to top their section. The commitment of many of the players to their country's cause had been questioned in the build-up to the game at the weekend after no fewer than nine players pulled out of the squad. However, McLeish, who could feel the same starting line as the weekend, has revealed the criticism his men have been subjected to has created a determination to succeed, and he is confident they can achieve their objective. I can see it in their eyes, he said. I've been in football a long, long time, and I know when you get a good feeling about things. I get a good feeling about this group of players. I see it in their body language. I see guys who are very motivated to win for Scotland and give their best performances. You get a good feeling as manager when you see that kind of player in your dressing room. McLeish added, Hell hath no fury like a Scotsman scorned. The DNA of the Scotsman comes into that. The players don't like to be criticised. I don't like it because we don't like to fail. But out of a failure, which was Israel away, we had to show the resilience and look how we approached Albania. It's never easy away from home at any length. Look at Liverpool, recently going to Red Star Belgrade, people expecting them to wipe the floor with them, but they had a difficult night and lost. You have to earn it, and we certainly earned it on Saturday with a performance level which was really good. There is no doubt it, that's winning the group, would be an achievement. 
Look at England winning yesterday. Gareth Southgate's men beat Croatia at Wembley to, stop, to top their section and the way they celebrated. So, of course, we have to embrace this. We will be going all out to win it tomorrow night. We've won a semi-final at the weekend and we are facing a big, big final tomorrow night. The guys have come off the back of a good performance with great confidence and I emphasise I can see it in their stature at the moment, the way they are walking about. When you talk to them individually, they are all absolutely 100% keen to do something for their country. Asked if he would keep faith with the team that won on Saturday, McLeish said, I'll be tempted, yes. We'll keep it close to our chest at the minute, but I've done that before on many, many occasions as a manager. The good news is everyone is fit to play. Israel are level on points with Scotland and only need to draw to go through because they would, having won 2-1 in Haifa last month, have a better head-to-head -head record than their rivals. Asked if he thought Andy Herzog's side would sit in and play for a point, he said, that's the question. They have been very positive and very strong going forward with the ball. They play very high wing-backs and they were really committed in Israel. They played really high against us. We're probably disappointed a wee bit in not seeing that space in behind them and not going there much more. Whether they will come here and sit in, we have to wait and see. Herald Scotland On Wednesday, the 21st of November, 2018 Opinion Section The Agenda Column We must have a people's vote to help protect the most vulnerable. Today's Agenda Column is by Professor Sir Harry Burns, Director of Global Public Health at the University of Strathclyde and former Chief Medical Officer for Scotland. Britain joined the common market on January 1st, 1973. No public vote was held. The first public vote on membership of the EU came more than two years later, on June 5th, 1975. Two-thirds of voters supported continuing membership. Forty-three years later, a second referendum was held because, it was believed, public perceptions of the EU had changed and now some sections of the population thought that continuing membership was not desirable. It seems that some people thought we should leave, so it was permissible to hold another referendum. The fact that the people had spoken in 1975 no longer counted. On June 23, 2016, the second referendum on membership was held and we're now negotiating to leave the EU. And because the people have spoken, it seems that further consideration of the issue cannot be countenanced. Several things have changed in the time since. Many of the reasons given for leaving have proven to be false. Some of these reasons might even, perish the thought, have been lies. The mess being made of the leaving process shows that there's unlikely to be any positive outcome of Brexit. It's become an exercise in limiting the damage to our economy, security and the welfare of our people. So... Why on earth does Brexit continue to have supporters? Advocates of Brexit broadly seem to fall into two groups. First, there are the London elites. One might cynically say that these are the people who feel they can personally profit from Brexit. When there's political turmoil, there's money to be made. And it would be surprising if many of Brexit's most vociferous supporters have not made appropriate arrangements with their brokers to ensure that their investments are protected. The second, more numerous group of supporters are at the other end of the socio-economic spectrum. Philip Olson, the United Nations Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, has issued a damning report on the way the UK government has breached human rights, increased poverty and undermined the well-being of the most vulnerable. 
For the UK, Professor Alston said, poverty is a political choice. He also suggests that the most disadvantaged will be the most damaged by Brexit. Poor people seem to have been persuaded that their economic plight was in some way due to the EU, and he concluded that, ironically, it was these very fears and insecurity that contributed significantly to the Brexit vote. And the UK government predictably disagrees with Professor Alston's conclusions. However, for the first time in 110 years, growth in life expectancy has stalled in Britain. Most public health experts point to austerity and cuts in public servers as the probable cause. And these data show that Professor Alston is probably correct. The only other country experiencing the same phenomenon is the US, where deaths from drugs, alcohol and suicide in middle-aged men have increased significantly since 2000. The areas experiencing the greatest rise in these deaths of despair were more likely to support Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And the Brexit vote seems to have been carried on the shoulders of those alienated poor who have been manipulated by the wealthy who stand to profit most from it. There's an increasing appreciation among citizens of the inaccuracy of the information they've been fed, how incompetently the Brexit negotiations are being handled, and how damaging it will be to society. And these new insights make further consideration imperative. We must protect the vulnerable in our society. A people's vote to consider the true impact of Brexit is essential giving citizens the option of remaining in the EU. This Agenda column was written by Professor Sir Harry Burns, Director of Global Public Health at the University of Strathclyde and a former Chief Medical Officer for Scotland. Professor Sir Harry Burns was Chief Medical Officer for Scotland until 2014. The Glasgow Herald, Thursday 22nd November 2018. Sport. Alex McLeish. I never considered quitting Scotland. I am only getting started and the best is still to come. By Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer. The criticism that was aimed in his direction as performers were found wanting and defeats were suffered may have stung as he attempted to build the Scotland team. But at no stage during the turbulent and often traumatic start to his second spell as national manager did Alex McLeish ever contemplate giving up. Not when his team slumped their heaviest home defeat in 45 years to Belgium. Not when they were booed off the park by their own supporters in Israel. Not when experienced internationalists retired or asked not to be considered for selection. Not when pundits questioned his suitability for the role. Not when players pulled out of his squad in their droves. The build-up to the final Nations League doubleheader against Albania and Israel was billed by many as being make-or-break for McLeish, despite the fact that he'd only been in charge for nine months and had overseen just two competitive games. If his team had failed to top Group C1, there would have been a clamour for him to be replaced. Even after a 4-0 win in Skoda on Saturday night, rumours abounded that he would stand down after the Israel game at Hamden on Tuesday evening, irrespective of the outcome. But it all simply spurred him on to prove the detractors wrong. Football is really fickle nowadays, isn't it? He said yesterday in the aftermath of a thrilling 3-2 win that had ensured his side topped their section and secured a Euro 2020 playoff spot. You are judged early doors. Two or three results and it is crisis. I just needed a bit of slack. After the last game, I didn't feel very good for 24 hours, but as soon as I got back in the next day, I was hard at it again. I want to prove everybody wrong who was doubting me. 
That was the key, and it has always been the key. Whenever you get knocked down, you have to get back up. I have done that loads of times in my career. I am determined. I have got a contract. I'm not going to walk out after four or five games because people are shouting at me or moaning at me and there's a little bit of negativity on social media. That doesn't make me want to quit. I'm only just getting started. The qualification games are the ones that mattered. If it didn't go well on Tuesday night, it would have obviously been a bit of a different interview today, but I would still be telling you I have only just started. It had been suggested, including by his former Scotland teammate, Davy Proven, that McLeish was, at 59, some way past his peak as a manager. But again, he used it as motivation. I feed off that, he said. It makes me more determined. I'm more experienced than I was when Davy thinks I had my best years, and I'm still passionate. I take inspiration from the Roy Hodgson's of this world, and as I say, I'm only just getting started. A much-needed switch from a 3-5-2 to a 4-3-3 formation in the last two games has transformed his reign. The change has allowed him to field on form wingers James Forrest and Ryan Fraser in their favoured positions. Both are exceptional in the wins over Albania and Israel and have years at the highest level ahead of them. McLeish had to reassure Forrest, who became the first player to score five goals in a row for Scotland since Dennis Law way back in 1963, that he was part of his plans after he was left on the bench for both the Belgium and Albania games in September. James was disappointed on one of the earlier trips, he said. I spoke to him after he'd had his shower and said to him, sorry, but there's definitely a place for you in this team. I had been going with the 3-5-2 and that didn't suit the wingers. We try to do the 3-4-3, which gives wingers a better chance, but perfecting that takes a lot of time. McLeish added, What do you say to James after scoring two goals at the weekend? The motivation was there. We just kept patting him on the back and telling him to go again. His finishing was brilliant. They were phenomenal finishes and the top strikers would have been proud of them. The fact the side that beat Albania and Israel was not his strongest. Lee Griffiths, John McGinn, Charlie McGrew, Stephen Naismith... John Souter, Kieran Tierney would all have been vying for a start if fit. Makes McLeish confident Scotland can improve further still going forward. Kieran was gutted to miss out, and so was John McGinn, he said. They were very keen to ignore the scans and come and play for Scotland. They are two really good young players who have been produced in this country. Can they become Scottish greats? That's the challenge for them. Another player who has a chance to attain legendary status is Andy Robertson. McLeish made the Liverpool left-back Scotland captain at the beginning of this season. It is not a decision he has had cause to regret. Andy has been a great captain over the two games, he said. He's great in the dressing room and pulls all the boys together. And if you don't see the overlapping Andy on the park, that's because he doesn't have Virgil van Dijk beside him and some of the others he has at Liverpool. We wanted him to be tighter to our centre-halves and that curtails his attacking flair but he gets it, he knows we're not Liverpool and he played a big tactical game. He's the equal of all his teammates. James Forrest scores a hat-trick and Andy plays for Liverpool but we try not to single out anyone. No one is above anyone else and there's great spirit in the squad. There remain significant hurdles to be overcome in future before Scotland book a place at Euro 2020, but the outlook is suddenly a lot brighter than it was this time last week. This article by Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer for the Glasgow Herald. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online 
for free at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. This is an article from the Herald. 22nd of November 2018. 70% of firms back Edinburgh Tourist Tax Chamber Study Fines. The main lobby group for the Scottish tourism industry criticised the research as unclear as the findings were unwelcomed by leading proponents of the tax move. The Scottish Tourism Alliance noted a limited number of respondents from the hospitality industry had voted in favour of the tourist tax or Transistent Visitor Levy, TVL, in the study. The Chamber said the survey yielded views from 200 businesses and organisations from across the city, including former hospitality, financial services, creative industries and transport industries. The research found that 69% of businesses would support the introduction of a charge and this went up by 79% if funds were ring-fenced for infrastructure in Edinburgh. It reported support varied between industries, from 50% in the hospitality sector to 81% of financial services, companies and 93% of third sector organisations. The form of levy most favoured was a per person per night charge. For the majority of respondents, 87%, would like the option to review the tax after a set period of time. City of Edinburgh Council, in consulate until December 10th, on a £2 per person per night charge for visitors to the city that would rise around £11 million a year. The Scottish Government is also consulting publicly on tourist attacks. Liz McCaffrey, Edinburgh Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive, said, After an extensive consultation with our members, we have found broad support for the principle of levy, which increases further if funds were dedicated to improving the city's infrastructure. We look forward to seeing the City of Edinburgh Council's proposals for the use of funds raised by TVL, and we remain committed to improving the environment for business that serve as a backbone for our local economy. We will be submitting to the Scottish Government's consultation articulating our own position and that of Edinburgh's businesses community in due course. Mark Rothall, Chief Executive of the STA, raised tax over burden fears and concerns about the depth and numbers in the survey. He said for STA and Hospitality Industry Trade Association UK Hospitality an agreement that the tourism tax issue is a significant one for all businesses, particularly those within the hospitality and tourism sector, in Edinburgh, and it has therefore come as no surprise to our associations that only 13 tourism and hospitality businesses responding to a survey were in favour of a tourism tax. It is also unclear if context around international price competitiveness was communicated to respondents, the UK position being 135 out of 136 countries in the most recent World Economic Forum report which points to the fact that the UK has a long way to go before we're able to put ourselves in the same league of price competitiveness as countries who have already introduced a tourism tax and most notably have much lower rates on VAT than the UK. 
We are encouraging all tourism businesses across Scotland and indeed in Edinburgh to engage in the Scottish Government's nationwide conversation around the tourism tax and the tax of the online portal, which I believe will be live this week. Adam McPhee, Council Leader, said these findings give yet more weight to our current plans and consolation, which has given everyone a chance to have their say. We have an increasing volume of visitors to the city which brings substantial benefits, not least economic growth. There also comes a greater requirement for the city to invest in managing the impacts of that success for businesses, visitors and residents. Edinburgh attracts more than 4 million visitors each year who contribute more than 1.4 million to the economy. This number is set to grow year on year, generating an additional 485 million for the city by 2020. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's aaatl at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. Herald Scotland. Arts. Recorded on the 21st November 2018. New Art Gallery and revamped observatory ready to open on Edinburgh's Calton Hill. By Arts Correspondent Phil Miller. The first look inside the New Art Gallery at the top of one of Edinburgh's landmarks, Calton Hill, has been made available today. Collective, with a restored city observatory, opens to the public this Saturday with a major £4.5 million refurbishment and development project. For the first time in 200 years, the city observatory, designed by William Playfair in 1818, will be open to the public. There is also new contemporary art gallery space and restaurant. The Lookout, which is being run by Gardener's Cottage, a restaurant in the city. The project has had a much-delayed opening. It was initially due to open in the summer. Collective Have said they are confident that tourists, visitors and art fans will make their journey to the top of the famous hill to visit the new attraction and gallery. Artists with shows in the first exhibitions include Daniel Sishi Bopape, James N. Hutchinson, Alexandra Lodo, Tessa Lynch, Catherine Payton and Klaus Weber. The City Observatory's telescope installed in the observatory in 1831 will be on display. The new art gallery, the hillside, has been built embedded into the hill in front of the observatory. The city dome, completed in 1895 as a subsidiary to the main observatory, has been restored and will play host to a changing programme of international artists showing their work in Scotland for the first time. A purpose-built restaurant, The Lookout, has been constructed on the northeast corner. Also restored as part of Collective is a transit house, originally used as an observatory, the building will now serve as a learning and education space for visiting schools and groups. 
The original politician's clock, called that title because it has two faces, is back on display. The redevelopment is the result of a partnership between Collective and the City of Edinburgh Council. Collective moved to the site in 2013 and began fundraising for the project. Kate Gray, director of Collective, said, After more than five years of fundraising and hard work, it's incredibly exciting to be opening our doors to visitors at last. Collective is situated in a very special location on Carlton Hill, and we hope to offer our visitors an equally special experience, combining extraordinary art and architecture with panoramic views of the city. We now extend a warm welcome to residents of Edinburgh and visitors to the city and invite them to come up and see us. Councillor Donald Wilson, culture convener of the City of Edinburgh Council, said, Gazing over the city from the top of Carlton Hill, the City Observatory has played an important role in Edinburgh's life for hundreds of years. Now it is set to become one of the most unique, must-visit destinations in all of the city. The building is a historically significant symbol of Edinburgh enlightenment, as well as a major contributor to the history of stargazing. It's a brilliant example of Scottish architecture, an original Playfair design, and boasts a prominent position on the Edinburgh skyline with panoramic views of the Firth of Forth, Arthur's Seat and Edinburgh Castle. When it reopens, it is also going to be a space for people to enjoy the arts and for the public to visit freely. Adam Malkinson, the director of Edinburgh World Heritage, said, We are delighted to support Collective's vision for conserving and reusing the City Observatory. Knowing the historical, architectural and scientific significance of the building, they first approached us to fund the production of a thorough conservation statement. This ensured that sensitive and appropriate repairs and interventions were made. Particular highlights for us were the restoration of Playfair's original 1827 open-plan layout for the ground floor and the conservation of the transit house. We have invested significant funds in the conservation of other monuments on Colton Hill over the last 10 years and are pleased to support these works which form the final piece of the jigsaw. Collective was established in 1984 and has been commissioning new contemporary art ever since. Collective has staged exhibitions by Ruth Ewan, Jeremy Deller, Mike Nelson and Claire Barclay as well as commissioning significant new works by Hito Stiel, Jesse Jones, and Marvin Gay, now Monster, Chetwind. It was formerly based on Cockburn Street. The project has been funded by Heritage Lottery Fund, City of Edinburgh Council, Creative Scotland, and Edinburgh World Heritage, among others. Barts correspondent, Phil Miller. Five children rescued from burning block of flats in Court Bridge. An article published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 20th of November 2018. Five children were among those rescued from a burning block of flats by firefighters. Emergency services were called to Stuart Court in Coatbridge, North Lanarkshire, at around 1am on Tuesday. A number of appliances were sent to the scene and safety advice was given to three people over the phone. Crews rescued three children and an adult before helping a further two children and two adults from the building. A Scottish Fire and Rescue Service spokeswoman said the blaze had been extinguished but officers remain at the scene. Police Scotland said a number of people were taken to hospital. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review and review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q and Review, and the producer was Jordan Duncan. Q and Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity, number SC 018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com 
or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.